Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory, founder of TeamsRock.com. Join us as Greg interviews thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from professional sports to manufacturing to business and industry. Now, let's join Greg for another powerful episode of the Teamwork Advantage. Welcome back to the Teamwork Advantage. This is a podcast that's dedicated to the growth, development, and advancement in three key areas. Teamwork, leadership, and culture. Think of a Venn diagram right there in the center of that. That's where all of those start to come together. We're so excited to be in our seventh season, and we've been downloaded now in over 80 countries around the world, picking up ideas to help people grow in their teams and build those teams and get them to work in what we're referring to as on purpose as opposed to getting it right some of the time. Joining us today is a gentleman who is absolutely clearly understanding what effective leadership is, but just not effective, where he's also powerful in understanding ethical leadership. If you recall, several weeks ago, we had Admiral Sean Buck, who's now retired from the United States Naval Academy, was talking about the power of civility in what we do, and that's a lot within the ethics that we have to understand in. But joining us today, also from the United States Naval Academy, is Joe Thomas, and he's currently the director uh, for the Vice Admiral James B. Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership right here in Annapolis at the United States Naval Academy. He's a retired Marine, and he served previously as the class of 1961 Professor of Leadership Education here at the Naval Academy, as well as director uh, for the Major General John Lejeune Leadership Institute and Marine Corps University in Quantico, Virginia. He's also taught at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the University of Maryland, George Washington University, and the National Outdoor Leadership School. He's published six books on the topic of leadership and ethics, along with numerous articles, book chapters, research reports. His most recent book, Cross-Cultural Competence for Leaders, a guide published by Rutledge in 2022. That's something we're going to want to chat about a little bit as well. Joe supported student research um, and that led to the award of the Rhodes, Mitchell, and Fulbright scholarships. He's planned and led cultural immersions, and this one's impressive, folks. South Africa, Tibet, Turkey, Vietnam, Morocco, Peru, Jordan, India, Mongolia, Papua New Guinea, and he's also taught at the academies and war colleges in Central Asia, Eastern Europe, throughout Africa. He holds a master's from the Maxwell School of Citizen and Public Affairs at Syracuse University, U.S. Army War College, a Ph.D. at George Mason, a certificate of public leadership from the Brookings Institute. This is another person who I believe values learning. Joe Thomas, welcome to the Teamwork Advantage. Well, Greg, thank you. And thanks for the kind introduction. It's uh, it's a great pleasure to be with you here today. I love when I see introductions that have got this much hardcore background and understanding of everything that kind of comes into play. So I find that just wonderful to hear see and the fact that what you're teaching today and what you're working with at the Stockdale Institute goes a long way in helping leaders develop and leaders develop at every level, not just at the C-suite level. So it all begins at the foundation. Before we get into all that, just a quick, I'm going to use the term Reader's Digest version of how you got to where you are. You didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to lead this institution. I'm going to have all these degrees and everything. How'd you get there? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, uh, and, and to be completely honest with you, I got here by accident. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Not the first time I've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> 
in my case, um, you know, the running joke in our family is that uh, I enlisted in the Marine Corps a long time ago uh, with a high school diploma and no plan. And then uh, throughout my first career, which was the Marine Corps, uh, my career kind of went in, in one direction or another, oftentimes not of my own choosing. And in the current path that I've been on, in fact, the path I've been on for the past 30 years or so uh, in my professional life uh, was one of those situations where I was voluntold into uh, graduate level education, uh, specifically in leadership. I had no background in it, but had a background in using statistical models to improve command and control systems and uh, was asked uh, more or less told uh, by the commanding general of uh, Marine Education Command uh, a long time ago, back in the mid-1990s, to assess leadership curriculum, to, to, to kind of take that on. One thing led to another. Uh, it wound up with a it, it work in a uh, PhD at George Mason University in Northern Virginia. And ever since that uh, point in time, again, since the mid-1990s, uh, I've been researching, teaching, thinking about leadership, leadership development, and, and almost nothing else since then. But, but it wasn't part of the original plan. It's, it's just something that kind of happened over time. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, it, it was just fortunate timing because, as you probably know, Greg, uh, leadership wasn't necessarily an academic discipline per se uh, as recently as the 1990s. It's, it's yeah. only become this interdisciplinary field that stands on its own uh, since that time. And, and from that point until now, if, if, uh, if Forbes magazine is to be believed, this past year, about $160 billion, that's with a B, was spent on leadership development in the American private sector alone. So it went from uh, essentially a, a non-entity to one of the, the, the biggest uh, enterprises, leadership development that is, uh, in, in America at this time. So uh, I just happened to be along for the ride while all that uh, was developing. That's absolutely impressive. And what's interesting, though, it, I find is as much as in the last, you know, 18 to 20 years ish, as you will say, as the leadership has really started to hit the growth curve, one area still is lacking. And that's where I'm trying to help out is in the followership side. There's yeah. so much that's taught about leadership, but it's not people don't know how to follow. And so right. being a good leader is about developing the right followers and creating followers and so that comes into play yeah tell us a little bit if you can about the stockdale institute i'm sure there are people here that are non-military who don't even remember who uh, admiral stockdale was sure uh well the uh we started out actually in 1998 we're, we're at our 25th anniversary year this year um we started out in 1998 it's a center for the study of professional military ethics and, and the center was formed in response to some, some pretty big ethical failings on, on the part of midshipmen and others uh, internal to the Naval Academy and to answer some bigger questions about ethical leadership um, nationwide, really. Uh, in, in the early to mid-1990s, the Academy went through some serious soul-searching. Uh, there, there was a very large cheating scandal at the time, not only at the Naval Academy, but other service academies experienced uh, similar things, um, but but the leadership, the most senior leadership of the Naval Academy and the Navy at the time uh, came up with the idea that we're going to have to create a center that would serve, and, and these words are important because it's part of the original charter of the center, to serve as a beacon for the nation. So 
it was originally intended not only to serve the needs, the ethical development needs of the midshipmen here at the Naval Academy, staff, faculty, coaches, and so on, uh, but also the larger Navy Marine Corps, uh, Navy and Marine Corps, as well as uh, institutions of, of national influence. We work then and we work today uh, with uh, other governmental agencies and so on and, and involve ourselves in, in uh, ethics conversations, ethics research that impacts a really broad swath. That was 1998, as I said, the founding. In 2006, uh, the name was changed from the Center for the Study of Professional Military Ethics to the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership um, to kind of acknowledge the role that leadership plays in all this. Ethics studied by itself, moral philosophy, uh, is important for sure, but not nearly as important as applied ethics, in our case, applied ethics in the context of military service. So leadership became a much greater part of it. And, and to this day, since we took on the name of, of Admiral Stockdale, and, and as you mentioned, for those who may not know him, he's a really, really interesting figure in naval history. Uh, in some ways, he's the warrior philosopher uh, of the Navy in that he's a practicing fighter pilot who happens to be shot down in 1965 uh, over Hanoi in North Vietnam, Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And... Uh, he had very fortunately, right before his command tour uh, on an aircraft carrier as the CAG, Carrier Air Group uh, Commander, uh, he studies, among other things, philosophy at Stanford University. And uh, stoicism, among other things, kind of informs his worldview so that when he is shot down in 1965, he has the presence of mind with everything else that's going on, his A4 burning and falling to the ground and him under the the uh, canopy of his parachute says, I am leaving the world of technology and entering the world of Epictetus. Epictetus being a uh, Greek Roman uh, philosopher, slave turned philosopher, who came up with a way of seeing the world to cope with hardships, uh, cope with, uh, give advice to uh, those who needed resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Uh, and he used that so effectively in nearly eight years of, uh, of his status as the senior prisoner of war in the famous Hualeu prison, otherwise known as the Hanoi Hilton, uh, that he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for that. Because he not only saved his own life, uh, but his, the exercise of, of true ethical leadership, focused, dedicated leadership in those horrific circumstances, saved the lives of countless uh, other prisoners uh, in, uh, in the Hanoi Hilton. And it's for that reason we uh, didn't have to think twice about what to name a center such as this at the Naval Academy. He himself was a 1947 graduate of, of, uh, here at the Naval Academy. And uh, ever since then, we've been focused on research, as we always have, consulting uh, internally and externally. Uh, we, we do teaching. Uh, we do curriculum development. We do uh, assessment of leadership and ethics and so on. And and the mission begins, uh, continues to kind of build over time. So it's a, it's a great honor to work here. And, uh, and we we're proud to kind of consider ourselves the internal think tank uh, at the United States Naval Academy. And it's so powerful because I've studied and watched uh, over the years as I've gotten involved. And again, what I think I shared with you earlier, one of my favorite quotes from Admiral Stockdale was the simple one that simply said, leadership must be based on goodwill. It means obvious wholehearted commitment to helping followers. What we need 
are more leaders than our men of heart who are so helpful that they in effect do away with the needs of their jobs, but leaders like that are never out of a job. Strange as it sounds, great leaders gain authority by giving it away. And I think that is so powerful when we look back on yes. what he went through and how he got through it. Now, sidebar note for the listeners, if you go back and find one of our early episodes, we had the privilege to interview uh, Captain Charlie Plum, retired U.S. Navy, who was also in that Hanoi Hilton, not for eight years, but for nearly six years. So that's some, if you want some other insights, go find that on our podcast list. Yeah, so, Charlie, I consider Charlie a friend and, and a true American hero. He's, uh, we continue to use Charlie ourselves quite a bit to deliver the message of, of resilience, toughness, leadership, and tough circumstances. Yeah, if you read his book, by the way, you know the title of his book is I'm No Hero, and yet we're all calling him a hero. He is. He yeah. truly is. And a great guy. Just absolutely wonderful gentleman I've had the privilege to know for about 12 years now. What I want to get into now is what is ethical leadership? Let's, let's start at the core foundation. In today's yeah. world, we've got so many things, and who decides what's ethical? That's, that, yeah, that's, that's uh, I think, uh, the most fundamental question we can ask right? at, at this moment in time in 2023, right? Uh, so maybe I'll take those words one at a time. Uh, okay. I'll define those. So we'll start from that foundation. First of leadership. What is leadership? Uh, over the course, as I mentioned, the past 30 years of thinking a lot about this, I've, I've kind of come up with a, a minimalist uh, definition, working definition of what leadership actually is. Um, it's a process, I believe, as opposed to a position uh, by which one directs, influences, and inspires the efforts of others toward a common purpose, right? Like many leadership definitions, and if you go online, you could probably find thousands of working definitions of leadership. But like many, there's, there's really two variables that play into that, right? There's a mission accomplishment portion, getting the mission done, getting a task done, solving problems. There has to be some type of end state associated with leading. Uh, and then there's, always, there's also the human dynamic. It's leading people. And I happen to, to select out those three words, direct, influence, and inspire. Those action words to me say everything you need to know because there's a time and a place for each of those things. Those, those three action words are all very different from one another. From the very basic, when time is of the essence and you don't have either the skills or, again, the time, uh, you direct other people to accomplish things. Uh, to the other end of the spectrum, which is inspire, when you do perhaps have the, uh, the luxury of time, where your role as an exemplar, uh, your role as a model of what things should be, how things should be done, uh, that's the most powerful form. It's the gold standard of leadership. So that's, that's how I frame leadership. Now, ethics is, is an important question, too, or important thing to define in that ethics and morality are oftentimes used interchangeably in conversations about this. And I believe those two things are related, but, but very different. Morality is how we come to individually make decisions differentiating right from wrong. Whereas ethics are how we collectively, as groups, as teams, as organizations, okay. as families, come to decisions differentiating right from wrong. So we teach ethics here. Uh, we don't teach morality. Although morality and understanding morality, how we come to individual decisions uh, about right and wrong, that's a really important thing to consider going in. Um, but 
by the time we finished the 47 month journey with all of our midshipmen, our students at the Naval Academy, we believe in that 47 months, they have to at minimum, not only understand what their ethical obligations are, because they are going to wear the cloth of the nation, they're going to raise their right hand, take an oath to the Constitution, they have to be aligned, in fact, in many ways, perfectly aligned with the obligations, ethical obligations of military service as a commissioned officer in the Navy or Marine Corps. Now, their morals, certainly at the front end of things, may seem to conflict in certain places with their ethical obligations. First and foremost, the, the, the most consequential thing we may ask military members to do, which is to take life, if you can't morally see yourself doing that at some point in the future, we have to have a conversation about that while you're here. In fact, we, we teach an, an ethics course in their sophomore year. We call them youngster, youngster year. Uh, all sophomores here are referred to as youngsters as freshmen are all referred to as plebes. But in that sophomore year, we have them go through cases and scenarios and situations where they try to square their moral values with their ethical obligations. And it's no coincidence that we do this in, in their sophomore year, because when they come back from their senior year, all of them sign an agreement, a contractual agreement of sorts, that commits them to five years of service in the Navy or Marine Corps beyond graduation. So it's called two for seven papers that they sign, uh, as in you're going to sign on for two more years of the academy, but in effect get seven more years of service, two at the academy and at minimum five in the Navy or Marine Corps. And we, we have these, these conversations about ethics before they sign that, because if, if you have any reservations, moral reservations, personal reservations in this case, you want to square those, come to grips with those before you sign those commitment papers, yeah. uh, while you can still walk away without any obligation. Once you start that junior year, it's assumed that you've worked through the most pressing, difficult conversations. Let's circle back to where we started this then. It's, it's interesting. I don't mean to interrupt, but I find yeah, it yeah, interesting. Please. I've known about the signing of the after the sophomore year. Yep. I've known about that, and that's when you get your commitment. I had not known that that was the reason behind that. Yep. And I find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yeah. That's... Um, I mean, it's it's a deliberate thing done on the part of the Naval Academy. It has been for an awfully long time. That that ethics course, required ethics course, was also born of that period in the uh, mid-1990s that I mentioned before, where it seemed that institutionally we had lost our moral compass, that there were so many questions regarding the ethical development of midshipmen that it, it was determined we, we need to have a formal required course in moral philosophy and and applied ethics uh, to help people kind of reason through those. And it made most sense to do that before they were committed to a, a, a career, whether it be a five-year career or longer of service. Let's talk a little bit, if we can, then. I mean, as I went through your bio of everything with your master's degree from Maxwell School at Syracuse to the Army War College, to everything that you've done, and you, you even brought up earlier the fact that leadership training and development is relatively new the most part, even though we know that they were doing some training or something before yep. that, but it really wasn't as robust. And, and I think you used the numbers $160 billion uh, in leadership development right now. Where's it going? Uh, what are we doing? 
yeah, that's that that question alone. Uh, <laughs> it, it, there's a lot of loaded answers to that because there's a lot being done out there. Uh, some, some good, some not so good. Yeah, some really not so good. Uh, there's a woman at Harvard University named Barbara Kellerman, who uh, several years ago wrote a book called The End of Leadership, which was a critique of the so-called leadership industry. Uh, and it really was a critique of a lot of people who hang a shingle and then don't attempt in any way to measure the return on investment of, uh, you know, of the resources devoted to leadership development. And, and, I, and she, it was kind of a wake-up call. There's been several books published like that, one uh, out of Rice University a, uh, a couple of years ago called uh, Leadership Reckoning. But there's been a number of things questioning it. Uh, I'll say this, Greg, that you know, for centuries, in fact, millennia, the way one learned leadership was to read biographies, right? Uh, this is the period of the, the so-called great man theories of leadership, where one could read a biography of, I don't know, Alexander the Great or perhaps Napoleon in later years and, and somehow through osmosis pull out these lessons for possible application in your own life. Now, reading biographies are still important today. I mean, we're inspired by biographies of, of successful, effective people, leaders. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a pretty unsatisfactory way to developing oneself. You have to put things, you have to harness the best practices of the behavioral sciences, because this is an interdisciplinary field that, that brings in psychology and sociology and today neuroscience and, and philosophy and many other things we could talk about. Um, but, but we know so much more as a result of work done during the 20th century that we can identify outcomes associated with good leadership, map those outcomes to the development of competencies, that is to say, knowledge, skills, abilities, and attitudes, and then ultimately measure them so that every intervention that we use with somebody and call it leader development is in fact provable to somehow changed attitudes, beliefs, skills, behaviors, what have you. That's fascinating because that kind of brings me up. We're talking about being able to judge the ROI. Yeah. How, one, that, that, that assumes then that leadership skills and leadership abilities can be assessed. Yeah. On a, Neutral scale, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So, so this, how, this do you, how do you assess leaders today? Yeah. So this is a, this is kind of an arcane distinction, but there's leader development and there's leadership development in in some circles. This is how it's referred to in this in this okay. field. Leader development suggests the assessment of the development and assessment of an individual. So I think if we're going to assess leaders, one fairly straightforward way of doing it is what I mentioned before as a competency. What are the competencies associated with an organization, a, a context in which that person will lead, okay. right? Every organization is a little bit different. Uh, one requires a different type of leadership in a military organization, for example, than, I don't know, among accountants. There's certain things that are universal and there are certain things that are context specific. But in light of the context, leaders need to identify or the developers of leaders need to identify the competencies that are most important they need to prioritize those and i mentioned before i define that as knowledge skills abilities and attitudes um, we have here at the naval academy a very deliberate disciplined way of thinking about measuring those outcomes right outcomes associated with those competencies in fact over the course of the past few years 
one of my colleagues here, uh, Captain Kevin Mullaney, uh, an industrial organizational psychologist, also happens to be a submariner, uh, has been working on serving up a tool on a smartphone so that everyone who's involved in the development of our midshipmen can weigh in with performance evaluations in a sim simple way, just kind of swiping the finger on this, on this application to provide feedback, not only to that midshipman, but to the institution writ large about how well the developmental programs are working. So that's leader development. Leadership development oftentimes is rooted in outcomes associated with the team or the organization. So I'm using the Naval Academy example first for leader development. I'll use a private sector example on the, uh, on the leadership development side. Uh, among the many organizations that, that do a lot of work in employee engagement assessment, probably the number one, probably the biggest one out there is the Gallup organization, right? Uh, the Gallup organization has many tools that they use to assess employee engagement and effectiveness or leadership effectiveness for that matter. But the, the most commonly used is called the Q12. It's a 12-question questionnaire that measures 12 different angles on employee engagement. And engagement is just another way of saying morale, uh, which is another way of saying kind of organizational climate and culture. And by measuring how the team looks at the function of the organization, the effectiveness of the organization, and how leadership feels to them, um, you get an entirely different metric, right? As opposed to communication skills, uh, to uh, as opposed to maybe decision-making abilities and things like that. Now you're talking about where the organization is going, right? A metric associated with, with it, engagement. It almost seems like what you're doing is putting the team with the leader outside of the circle, the team, and then what you're doing is doing a 360 on the team. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's fair to, to, to characterize it that way. I would also add to that, Greg, we have to measure both, right? Yes. So there's individual effectiveness that can and should be measured, right? That's the leader herself or himself. Uh, and then if, again, because most leadership definitions come down to two things, mission accomplishment or problem solving and people uh, engaged in, in solving those problems. Um, so in, in that sense alone, measuring the individual effectiveness of leaders is really important. And we can do that through self-reporting uh, surveys and instruments. We absolutely should do it with other reporting surveys and instruments as in 360s that you mentioned. But, but when it comes to measuring organizational outcomes, um, it almost always depends on aggregating data from people across the organization. In other words, you're not gonna find out much about organizational effectiveness by only asking one or two or three, for that matter, uh, individuals within the organization. You need to look at everything on balance as best you can, either through a, a good size, an appropriately sized sample, or the organization writ large. And that's where organizations like Gallup come in, uh, because they'll they'll parachute into your organization, they'll give this Q12, they'll, they'll collect the data, they'll compile the data, they'll make this data presented in such a way to compare yourself with like organizations and it even give you some suggestions about how to improve uh, organizational effectiveness kind of going forward. And, and I'm not, uh, I'm not on retainer from Gallup. So I don't, I don't want to sound that I'm trying to sell a Gallup product here. I'm, I'm not right. at all. I'm just right. using them as an example of, of a, a 
really a big player in this space. And there are hundreds, if not thousands more organizations like that uh, out there available for that type of measurement. So they're doing that. They've got the assessment that's in place to measure the uh, leadership ability, but they've also got the leader ability. Am I right? Yes, that's correct. And we've got to measure both because you've got to be an effective leader to be providing effective leadership. Yes. Now, it's it's also possible, though, and I, I agree with that, but I, I think we've all experienced, if you if private sector, public sector, doesn't matter. If you've been around uh, a while, you've probably seen situations where really good, effective leaders, sometimes due to circumstances beyond their control, the market you're dealing in with right now, uh, a, a workforce that's unwilling to kind of go along uh, with the vision of that leader and, and many other factors that we could list. Uh, good leaders sometimes fail. And the reverse is also true. Sometimes really toxic people can run organizations that are very, very successful, right? It's almost like the organization succeeds in spite of leaders. So that's partly why I say we have to measure both. Uh, we can get a very misleading picture by only measure measuring the leader herself or himself, just as we can get a very misleading picture by only measuring organizational outcomes. Uh, we kind of have to triangulate uh, by taking as many uh, factors into consideration right. as possible. You've got to have the larger sample size to be able to pull it all in for one, yeah. and then being able to pull it in. And what that does is it creates a good solid baseline to be measured against other like positions. That's that's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. And, and getting, that baseline, getting that baseline, just like getting your blood pressure baseline or your uh, any other baseline in your health, have yes. a baseline so you can watch things tick up or down. Yes. And and in addition to that, then choosing instruments, survey instruments, tools that are both uh, reliable and valid. They're 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 basically answering what you intend. Uh, in your questions, and that they're, the, the data that they render are consistent over time. So, so reliability can, and validity is important. So can the average leader in an organization or can an organization, you had mentioned Gallup, and I, I know there's other organizations, but are there, are there, is there a place where they can go and look and find an assessment that might work for them? For example, I use an assessment called the Everything Disk Model for Management. And it talks about different aspects of how they manage, but that's strictly on the people side. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't get into the other aspects. Are there other places where leaders can go and find uh, an assessment like that to help them? There are countless tools. Psychometric instruments is, is, is you know, what they're referred to by these organizational psychologists who put these things out into the world. You know, even if you're, you talk about, personality inventories, right? Uh -huh. the, the most commonly used psychometric instrument out there is, is a measure, is, is a personality measure called the Myers-Briggs type indicator, MBTI. MBTI. Yep. Uh, it happens to be based on, on very outdated uh, psychology, personality psychology, but nonetheless, it's still yep. a very effective tool for understanding human differences. Right. It's based on four dichotomous scales, introversion, to extroversion, thinking, to feeling, and so on. Uh, that help people, especially if you if you frame this conversation effectively, that help people understand that we all come to the table 
in conversations and problem solving settings with different needs and different preferences. And as a result, we're going to show up differently in conversation, in these, in these problem solving conversations. And just an awareness of that alone, whether or not this is good personality science, so to speak, almost doesn't matter. The point is, if you're realizing it, yeah, if you've got teams that keep butting heads in staff meetings and you can't get to effective um, uh, problem solving as a result of all this personality conflict and clashing, you might want to select an inventory having to do with personality. And the Myers-Briggs is the most commonly used out there. I'm not I'm not a big fan of it uh, necessarily, but I have used it and I and I've had it used with on me. Mm-hmm. And, and it can be a really good stepping off point. And, and right. beyond that, there's thousands more that we could right. talk about. You got to know what you want to measure first. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, now, Patrick Lencioni talked about in his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, right. talked about right. heavily for years about Myers-Briggs. And then the newer version of the Everything Disc model came out. And he went back and actually changed his book to say Myers-Briggs and Everything Disc. I talked yep. about them both being so powerful. Because the DISC model starts to focus in on a little bit more on the behavior aspects, which may change. So. I'm a fan of the DISC myself. I, I have used DISC uh, in the past and the, and the Hogan. And, mm-hmm. and we use a variety of things here. Everything oh, yeah. From there's strength identity. finders. There's lions strength and tigers and bears, oh my, or something like that. Uh, yeah. there, there's countless, countless of these things out there and available. So back to your original question, can people find things like this? Yes. If you've got a need, if you've got an outcome that you're after, Odds are pretty good with a very brief internet search. You can find everything ranging from personalities we talked about to resilience. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of okay. tools out there for that purpose. How how can we create? Um, there's a term that we used to be used uh, when they're trying to um, nurture somebody and mold them to be a better leader, trying to create them to become the next person in line for succession. You know, there's all those types of languages that have been used. But bottom line is, how do we create better leaders? And then let's deepen it even more, more ethical leaders in private sector. You've got your way at the Naval Academy. Yeah. I love that because it, you get to, it gets to come in there. By the way, when you were talking about that, it reminded me of the uh, movie my father had me watch when I was a really young boy called Sergeant York. Uh, oh, yeah. Sure. about phenomenal Classic. ethical moral dilemma there yeah so. that he struggled mightily with alvin york struggled mm-hmm. extremely uh it, it, it tore him apart trying to square his personal faith with the obligation of being a soldier yeah. um and, and thankfully thankfully for this country <laughs> um he was able to kind of work through that and and honestly that's a classic example we've got young men and women who struggle in the same way while they're at West Point or at the Naval Academy or at the Air Force Academy. And it's a healthy thing to do to kind of work through square kind of morality, which may exist uh, separate and distinct from ethics and see if we can bring those two things in alignment before you take the oath to the Constitution. That's a great example. Exactly. And then when you were going to, that's exactly where my mind went because I thought it was a phenomenal example. Yeah. Let's let's talk about how do we teach organizations today, private sector, volunteer, nonprofit groups? How can we get those organizations to create more effective leaders and yep. be effective leadership 
as well as the ethical side of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think. Well, first off, can it be done? I, I think the answer to that is yes, it can be done. I, I think there are organizations out there, many organizations that that do get this right. Succession planning or, or growing leaders from the bottom up. Uh, there's a lot of approaches and a lot of different ways to do it. But when it comes to modifying beliefs and behaviors that go into the development of a an ethical leader, um, it cannot be escaped that the number one thing that that impacts all of us is the simple observation of others. And there have been many large-scale studies on this very point. What are the ways that we develop as leaders? And development is you know, oftentimes considered a combination of training, education, and experience. Right? Training. Can you break down the difference between training and education? Because a lot of people think they're the same. Yeah. So training education, there's a, there's a phrase, an age-old phrase, uh, that's attributed to a variety of people, but it's, we train for certainty, we educate for uncertainty, right? Wow. That is to say, we engage in training uh, in the military sense, we think of it as task condition standards, right? So they're very clear activities that we undertake to develop muscle memory. So we go to the, the, the weapons range, right? We're trying to do the same thing every time right, in the most effective way to put a round on a target. That is pure training. For our example from earlier, the ethical development midshipman, that relies on education, right? The outcome of creating an ethical leader of character around here is clear, but the path to get there is very, very different. We, you know, Admiral Stockdale, uh, had what has been referred to as a 3,000-year-old mind. That is to say, he studied the classics of the Greeks and Romans. He studied the classics down through the centuries. Uh, there is no task condition standard way of developing muscle memory. He simply exposed himself to all of these various ways of framing the world and, and, and seeing problem solving and, and interacting with people um, that gave him a much broader perspective of how the world works and how people work. So we combine training, we're training for things that we know how to get to that very narrow outcome. But we educate for situations of complexity and ambiguity, where there aren't any clear step-by-step -step paths to solving that problem. Rather, there's things that we can draw upon while solving problems, right, that come from a variety of sources that may be applied in ways that you could not have foreseen when you were reading, okay. as Admiral Stockdale did, the philosopher Epictetus. <laughs> he had no way of knowing that reading Epictetus would be brought to bear as a prisoner of war in North Vietnam. There's no way. But luckily, he engaged in education. And then the third piece I mentioned is, is experience, just physically doing something and then deliberately drawing lessons from that experience through guided reflection or, or self-reflection, that's really important too. So I would say, to answer the immediate question, training, education, experience make up development, right? So those, those three parts and having a deliberate plan for all three of those things is really, really important. So that, that's important. Now, how do, how do organizations get there? Well, you got to stand for something. You've got to know 
what outcomes you're after. And you've got to clearly state what they are. And it, and it begins with modeling. The, the senior most leaders in the organization have to model what the organization stands for. Because if, if you've crafted the most beautiful language around your organization's core values and post it on a bulletin board somewhere or, or carve it in stone in the entrance to your building, yet people even haven't thought through what they actually mean and they certainly don't see it embodied in their senior leaders, then you've wasted time. In fact, it, it's, it's very counterproductive even to create core values, statements of core values, if you aren't acting on those. Yeah. Uh, because for most people, when they, they see people doing one thing, right, yet they hear that you should be doing these things, it creates cognitive dissonance, as psychologists refer to it. Yep. And that cognitive dissonance is a way of reacting to hypocrisy, which is counterproductive because it creates cynicism in the employee and they want to step away from it. So modeling good leadership practices is the starting point. And then after that, that's a, and that's at every level, whether it, yes, at every it to start at the C-suite in corporate America uh, or, you know, anywhere else, it's got to start at the top. Yet each level needs to also have their own, making sure they're modeling that and you know, it all starts to, so there's congruency. Absolutely. And in, in some ways, uh, I think the research is pretty clear on this. It's the people you observe most every day that matter the most. Right. So your first line supervisors, your mid-level managers, if they are not acting on core value statements, uh, you know, or, or on leadership best practices, those are the things that'll spread fastest, right? If, if, yeah. if they do see those gaps and they do see hypocrisy and, and corner cutting uh, and, and so on, kind of less than ethical behavior, that'll become the norm. That'll become part of the culture. And, and that, as you know, is really, really hard to break. And you brought up something else. You said it's got, you got to get started knowing what your results are, what you're really looking for. Yeah. And I think we know where that goes back to. One of the places I first was brought aware of that was uh, from a little book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Sure. That began with the end in mind. That, that's a fact. And so yeah, I, I've got a soft spot in my heart for that particular book. Uh, a a spinoff to that was the source of my dissertation. The use of uh, Covey's work at Marine Corps University was the source of my dissertation a long, long time ago. And of course, that started that book started out as his dissertation. That's uh, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I could keep going on this for a lot longer. We've been out here for a while. I want to address one thing with you before we finish up. Admiral James B. Stockdale, of course, has the statue right there outside your building where you are on the Naval Academy grounds. Jim Collins, in his book, Good to Great, which I reference a lot from all the different types of leadership and all the organizations that have come about, um, coined the phrase, the Stockdale paradox. Can we kind of talk about what that really means and how it applies today? Yes. Uh, so a paradox, paradoxical thinking, right? It's the ability to hold two competing thoughts in your mind at one time. Almost like and, what you were saying with the uh, morals and... Uh, that's right. Morals yeah. and ethics. That, that's, mm -hmm. that's, exactly, that's exactly right. Um, the paradox in the case of Stockdale's experience as a, as a POW is that he saw on one hand the need for optimism, which is another way of saying holding on to hope that there will eventually be a good outcome, 
of all of this. And if you're suffering day in, day out, if you're being tortured as Admiral Stockdale was and, and held in confinement, solitary confinement for extended periods of time, you have to be able to hold out hope that ultimately you're going to be relieved of this situation somehow. Somehow it's going to end up uh, working out in your favor. You'll be released, that is to say. But on the other hand, this is the paradoxical aspect of it, you can't have a, a type of naive hope where you start to place artificial um, goalposts out there along the way in that long-term vision that you will ultimately succeed or prevail. That is to say, you can't say in your own mind, oh, we'll be out here by Christmas. In, in fact, this is what uh, Jim Collins pulled out of Stockdale in the interview that he had with him, said, okay, why did some just die of broken spirits? Well, it was the optimist. The response to the Collins was the optimist who died. Uh, but you might fairly characterize them as the naive optimists, the unrealistic right. optimists who put these artificial goals out there. I would say, we're going to be released from this camp by Christmas. I can read the tea leaves here, just the way the guards are treating us. Uh, you know, what little bit of information we do get is kind of leading to the fact that you know, the end of the war is coming or somehow we're going to be released. There's going to be a deal struck by certain dates. And as those dates come and go, the spirit, the very spirit of those naive optimists gets kind of pulled away from them, gets sucked out of them. And as a result, they become less optimistic over time. They become uh, more resigned to their fate and somebody without hope, of course, that's uh, the most dangerous position to be in, in a, in a situation like a prisoner of war camp, and they they die. Uh, Stockdale's not the only one who wrote about this. Um, it's an incredibly uh, powerful book called Man's Search for Meaning, written by a Holocaust survivor. Uh, who, who Victor Frankel. Yep, yep, Victor Frankel, who we, we use that book and references to that book almost as much as we do uh, Stockdale's books and Stockdale's writings. Um, and, and, and Frankel talks about the same dynamic in concentration camps uh, in World War II. And, and the fact that he was able to see a light at the end of the tunnel and not be distracted by these small gains and losses that occur on the path to the end of the tunnel. Uh, and in fact, Frankel did some really, really powerful things after his captivity as well, incredibly powerful things uh, that led to the development of a whole therapeutic way of of approaching, you know, bouncing back from uh, from trauma, a way of approaching resilience. Right. That's fascinating when we start to really get into it, because there's so many ways we can look at that in our own personal lives, uh, whether we're going through some kind of a medical challenge or whatever. Being positive is one thing, and it goes back to something that I remember that I learned from one of my mentors, Zig Ziglar. And Zig yeah. says, I have a great positive attitude, but a positive attitude will not help me do anything. But it will help me do everything better than a negative attitude will. Love it. Love it. Yeah. And, and, and I think uh, Zig Ziglar and, 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 and James Stockdale and, and others recognize that positive attitude is important, but the discipline to move yourself in the direction that you need to go, that's the key. You, get, you really got to have both. You can have all the motivation in the world, all the optimism in the world, uh, but if it's not combined with an iron will, with a discipline to do those things you need to do during the hard times, day in, day out. And in the case of, of those naive optimists, they just stopped eating. 
in in the Hanoi Hilton. Right? They just stopped eating. They they stopped doing the the little things that would keep them alive because of the loss of hope over time. Where the realistic optimists day in, day out, almost minute by minute, did exactly what they needed to do to stay alive for that long-term goal. And that's, that's what we've got to look at, is something I heard recently is a phrase called, train, don't try. Because there's so many people who are constantly trying and giving up. Whereas yeah, when absolutely. you train for it, as they did, the, the optimists with the reality, they're training doing things in a certain way to get there. Yeah. Well, there's a reason discipline is one of the cardinal virtues. Right? We talk about ethics. Ethics, in some ways, roots all the way back to kind of virtue ethics. Uh, and, and among the, uh, the ways to look at virtue, the four cardinal virtues, discipline is, is one for a reason. Uh, you really have to have a plan and you really have to stick to that plan to accomplish anything of value in life. Well, I appreciate your time today. Uh, again, I could go on with this a lot longer. I hope we can have you back on here sometime and go into this in a little bit more depth. Oh, I, Greg, all my pleasure. It's, it's, uh, it's a, a fascinating conversation. I, I enjoy the opportunity to chat with you today and, and look for, forward to the opportunity to do it again at some point. And there's so much that we can learn from the way the military does things and putting it into personal practices ourselves. Those are the things that we start to look at. And today you've given us ideas that I believe leaders at any level can build on. And that's the key factor. Whether we're leading a, a group of kids at an organizational football or basketball or baseball league, or whether we're leading our church choir, or whether we're leading anybody else, we're in there. We use these tools. And you've given us some great tools today to stop and think about as we go forward. So I want to say thank you very much for your time today. I know how valuable time is, and thank you. Thank you, Greg. All my pleasure. So, folks, you know, once a week with the Teamwork Advantage, you get ideas that you can implement right away. And Joe Thomas has definitely given us those today from the Stockdale Institute, excuse me, the uh, Stockdale Center for Le Ethical Leadership. Get it correct there? I think I got it right. Got uh, it. <laughs> but these ideas that you can implement immediately. You know, my philosophy, everybody, if you've been listening for a while, you know that having a good day is just for average people. It's like getting a C on that term paper. So do not have a good day. Go out and have yourself an excellent and exceptional day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit TeamsRock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.